You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Well, good morning, everyone. What a joy to see you this morning and to worship the Lord together. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to read verse 1 through 10, but we will be focusing our attention on verses 8 through 10, concluding this section of the letter. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Let me read God's word for us. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship." created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. How might you summarize the gospel? Every passage of scripture is profitable. We know this, but there are certain sections of scripture that summarize the gospel so clearly, so eloquently, so concisely, and few passages of Scripture rival the ones before us in terms of its clarity and cohesion of the gospel. For by grace you have been saved through faith. The Lord has used these verses before us to awaken many sinners unto salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ over these last 2,000 years. And we pray certainly that God might do that again today as we marvel this God who gives faith and as he gives salvation to those of us, all of us, who are undeserving of it. As Paul has articulated the gospel so clearly in Ephesians chapter 2, he has indeed wounded our pride. Maybe you've felt the conviction of the Spirit in, the own way, in your own way these last few weeks because the gospel is distressing. We should minimize that. And why is the gospel distressing? Well, because it shows us who we really are apart from Christ. It shows the, the dire state of our hearts. But the gospel is distressing, and it must distress us before we can really understand its good news. If you're not distressed by the gospel at any point in time, then you probably don't understand the gospel, nor have you believed in the gospel. Every person, as Paul has showed us, is dead in their trespasses and sins. We walk in step with the world. We follow the world. We follow the devil. We follow our flesh. And like all humanity, we rightly deserve God's wrath. We are children of wrath, Paul says. But he confronts us in our desperate condition. He wounds our self-reliance. Why? In order to help us marvel, to be astonished at the graciousness of God. 
You see, without first seeing your helplessness, you cannot receive, let alone rejoice in God's merciful intervention. But God rescues. He does. He rescues us. He rescues children of wrath like us, and he not only uh, rescues children of wrath like us, but he adopts us into his family. What wonderful good news is this? He takes human husks like you and me in our sin, and he creates spiritual life within us. He makes us alive together with Christ. So as Paul recounts the testimony of every Christian from death to life, he sums up the gospel in our passage with great clarity, doesn't he? Look at the text again. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So in our study of scripture today, we have two fundamental questions before us. First, how are we saved? What more important question could there be for us today? How are we saved? How can we have salvation? How does God accomplish our salvation? How does that salvation become effective in our individual lives? That's the first question. And then secondly, why are we saved? Why does God save us? For what purpose has God done this work of grace through faith in our lives? Those are the two questions. How are we saved and why are we saved? Let's deal with the first one and by far the most pressing. How are we saved? And the text gives us a very clear answer. We're saved by grace through faith. By grace through faith. Verse 8 introduces three words that ought to immediately seize our attention as we read the biblical text. Grace saved faith. Three huge words. And we're going to look at each of those words a little bit more closely as we go. But we see that verse 8 really in so many ways encapsulates all that Paul has been trying to teach us so far from Ephesians chapter 2. He's so eager to get to the truth of verse 8 that he actually kind of spilled the beans a little bit back in verse 5, mentioning it early when he talks about how God has made us alive together with Christ, raised us up, seated up with Christ. Paul introduces this theme early. By grace you have been saved through faith. Paul is so overflowing, he's bursting with joy at God. God's salvation that comes only when we are united to his, uh, to Christ, to God's beloved son. And as Paul describes the gospel, he emphasizes time and again, over and over again, that God saves by his grace. He emphasizes it so much so he doesn't want to miss it. In fact, if Paul had Microsoft Word and a laptop, he would have bold, italicized, and underlined the phrase grace. He does not want you to miss it. It is by grace we have been saved. He belabors his point for a reason, because we're so prone to miss it. In verse 8, he announces, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And you know, as we read other letters of Paul, as we read Paul's other writings, we might expect him to just skip the remainder of verse 8, but for by grace you have been saved through faith. And we might expect him to skip and go directly to verse 9, not a result of works. That would follow Paul's other thoughts in Romans and the way he articulates things. That would be in character, through faith, not a result of works. But Paul, but Paul draws our attention by God's grace by, again, belaboring the point, emphasizing it, italicizing it. He's trying to make it as explicit as he can. So at the end of verse 8, he adds it, just in case you're confused, what grace means, right? This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. 
Paul does not want you to miss that this is all God's doing. God does this by his grace. It is his gift. We contribute nothing. So everything Paul has described concerning God's loving work to make us alive, raise us up, seat us with Christ, this comes only by God's acting, God's initiative, God's doing. This is not your own doing, the text says. It is the gift of God. And what does this refer to at the end of verse 8? This is not your own doing. What does Paul have in mind? Does it refer to faith? The faith is not your own doing? Does it refer to grace? The grace is not your doing? Or does Paul have in mind the whole scope of salvation, the work of redemption? I think Paul has the latter in view. The entire scope of salvation is on his horizon. The faith that we have to believe in the gospel, it's a gift from God. The grace that we receive from the gospel by our faith, it's a gift of God. The entire work of redemption from beginning to end, from eternity past to our glorification and future, all of it is God's gift. It's all God's gift. The entire work of redemption is God's gift. And the original language helps us see that this is most likely what Paul has in mind in verse 8. In Greek, nouns and pronouns have gender. And Paul uses here for this, in verse 8, he uses the neuter demonstrative pronoun for this, even when the Greek words for faith and grace are feminine nouns. So if he had intended to single out faith or grace, we might expect him to use a feminine pronoun, but he doesn't. And why is that? Because Paul has in mind the entire scope of salvation. All of it. Faith, you got it. Grace, you got it. Eternal life, you got it. Right? All of it comes by God's doing. Paul is stressing that the whole work of salvation is by God's doing. And yes, even the faith we have to believe in the gospel comes from God's initiative. Remember what Jesus said to Simon Peter when he confessed him rightly as the Christ? Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for you were smart enough to figure it out. No, that's not what he said. (laughs) What did Jesus say? For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You see, when it comes to our salvation, the only contribution that we make is the sin that makes redemption necessary. That's the only thing you bring to the equation. We are spiritually dead. We are as active in the work of salvation as Lazarus was in his own resurrection meaning you do nothing. You're just rotting in the tomb. How do we come alive? We are but the rotting corpse. Who is the one who resurrects? By whose voice commands life? What is the voice and power of the Son of God? And so God must get the glory for the work of salvation. And though we rejoice in our rescue, praise God that God does save, but we don't get the credit for that. God alone gets the credit for that. If you were around in 1987, you might remember 18-month-old baby Jessica who fell into a well in Texas. Immediately, as soon as she fell into that well, rescuers sprang to action to save this 18-month-old baby girl. 
And it was a nationally televised event. The whole nation held its breath while rescuers attempted to get this little girl out of the well. For 55 hours, everyone waited to see if this girl's life could be saved. And her life indeed hung in the balance. And eventually they were able to reach her. And they brought her up safely to ground. But when the headlines came out the next day in the papers rejoicing about her safety, nobody ran a story that said something like this. 18-month-old climbs out of 22 feet well to save herself from death. No, that wasn't the headline. Or super baby, Marvel's next superhero, levitates out of the well without help. Right? That's not the headlines. No, baby Jessica was utterly helpless, unable to deliver herself. And if it wasn't for the aid of the rescue team, she had no hope. She was as good as dead down there in the well. And that gets to the very heart of the Christian gospel. And what we mean by God's grace, that it is God's work. It is his doing. It is his initiative. He does the work. So do you realize how helpless that you really are without God's intervention? Paul says that salvation is not our own doing. It is not a result of works. And if here we find ourselves, right, in our spiritual intuitions of our age, we become, we think of ourselves as self-reliant, don't we? We think that we can contribute something to our lives, to our salvation, but that is not the gospel. It's something we're tempted to think because of our generation, but it's not the truth. Paul not only has in mind the works of the law, but anything we might try to do to save ourselves. None of it can do it. But many people actually give it a go, don't they? to try to save themselves. They become self-reliant. And so they cobble together a self-made religion of moralism in order to try to achieve salvation, to earn it, to deserve it. It's a form of self-salvation, isn't it? Self-reliance is America's homegrown religion. The the self-confident, the self-help, This self-reliant attitude actually emerges quite early in American history. You can actually trace it back to the transcendentalists, thinkers like Henry David Thoreau or Ralph Waldo Emerson. Emerson, in fact, wrote a book called (laughs) Self-Reliance. And notice how remarkably modern he sounds. He writes this in the book. He says, trust thyself. Every heart vibrates to that iron string. And doesn't that sound just like the sort of satanic drivel that Hollywood has been catechizing us with the last 30 years, right? Doesn't that sound just trust yourself, be the true you, you can overcome, you can do it. There's this sort of nonsense that so many people live their lives by today. Maybe you're living your life that way, thinking that you can save yourself. You got to be the true you. You got to trust in you. You can overcome. Let me give you a quote of the high priestess of the American religion named Oprah Winfrey. Here's what she says. If you're sitting around waiting on somebody to save you, to fix you, to even help you, you are wasting your time because only you have the power to take responsibility to move forward, move your life forward. I'm tempted to vomit just at regurgitating such words, right? But this sort of rugged individualism, this actually, this is a very part of our, our soil in this country. And we have to recognize it is a demonic lie, demonic lie. We are like children growing up in an old home filled with asbestos called self-reliance. And self-reliance is making all of us sick, and it's afflicting us with a spiritual cancer. 
God's grace is an affront to our cultural sensibilities. It, it offends us if we really think about it honestly. We say, I can be a good person. And then the Bible says, no one's righteous, no, not one. We say, I can fix myself. But the Bible says, well, guess what? You're dead in your trespasses and sins. We can say, well, I can become a better me. And Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. You see, to become a Christian, we have to recognize our spiritual helplessness before a holy and just God. You can attempt to work. You can attempt to justify yourself by your good deeds, but you will fail. You can't do it. You can even take up religious work and be a good Christian sort of person, right? You can try to live with the legalistic discipline of the Pharisees, but you will be nothing more than a whitewashed tomb. You see, self-reliance self can take a deceptively religious turn. When people use religious observance in order to try to justify themselves, but yet Paul tells us in Romans, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Doesn't matter how religious you are, doesn't matter how talented you are, doesn't matter how many good deeds you perform in your life, the scripture is clear, you are helpless without God's grace, without his working. And imagine for a second that you decide to take a flight, you're on an airplane, and your airplane is flying over the South Atlantic, and that airplane crashes thousands of miles from any coast. And on the plane, there are three individuals. There's an Olympic swimmer, an average swimmer, and a guy who doesn't know how to swim. And so the Olympian encourages the, uh, encourages the others, and he tells these other guys, don't, you don't need to worry about this, right? We've got this. I'm an Olympic swimmer. Follow me, and I'm going to get you out of this. And so from the wing of the plane in the middle of the ocean, he dives in, heading for the tip of South America about 1,000 miles away. Now the other two men jump in, and they start paddling after him as best they can. After 30 seconds, the non-swimmer sinks to his watery grave, doesn't know how to swim. Another 30 minutes go by, and the average swimmer seems to be doing okay, but eventually he too, 30 minutes in, goes down to Davy Jones's locker. But the Olympian keeps churning out the miles, swimming for an impressive 25 hours straight. He swims a total of 50 miles in the ocean, and with great confidence, he thinks to himself, terrific. I've only got 475 hours to go and 950 miles. And if he keeps up that pace, he'll arrive safely on the coast of South America in 19 days. And of course, we know that swimming for 20 days without stopping, without food or water, without sleep, is an impossible feat. Even the Olympian, with his great athletic performance, goes down and drowns in the Atlantic like all the others. No matter how morally you live your life, no matter how ethically you choose to be, you are well over a thousand miles from those heavenly shores. You can't get there on your own. So what then is our hope? How then can we be saved? And so we come to the refreshing truth of the gospel. It offends us, yes, but when we recognize it, how refreshing it is. For by grace, 
you have been saved through faith. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. Only God's initiative, only his intervention, only he can rescue us from our deserved judgment. And how is this grace applied to our lives? Well, it's applied, Paul says, through faith. We can do nothing to save ourselves. We don't earn God's salvation, hence it's by grace. And put simply, salvation is God's gift. Even the faith is a gift. And why has God done it this way? Why is salvation a single act from God himself? Why is it not dependent on you and me? Well, Paul tells us why in verse 9. Do you see it? Not a result of works. Why? So that no one may boast. That's why. Why does God do it this way? Well, because you don't need to take any credit for that. (laughs) God alone deserves the glory. If salvation rested in any capacity on our shoulders, our decision, our wisdom, our intelligence, then we would thereby rob God's glory in the work of redemption. And if we saved ourselves, even in the tiniest fraction, then you and I would have grounds to exalt ourselves. But God, who has acted out of love for us and who has acted out of great zeal for his glory, has chosen to make himself the single actor in the salvation of sinners so that he alone can receive the praise. And so the Christian boasts, yes, we do, but we do not boast in ourselves. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Has the God of grace saved you this morning? Or are you trapped in the self-salvation of moral living? Here's a warning for us all today, particularly those of us here in this room. The enemy prefers to lay the snare of moralism in the church. He could put it all sorts of places. He could put it in all sorts of places of sin. But no, he's chosen for the most dangerous trap the most sinister of his schemes to be laid in the church where people think that by their moral religious behavior that they can be made right before God. Because after all, I mean, Satan's cunning. After all, we can think it's easier to camouflage that snare, to hide it if it's among the redeemed of God who are eager to do good works in holiness for the glory of God. It's easy for Satan to kind of put that little trap there and people fall into it sometimes without even realizing they've been grabbed by it. The enemy can easily lull church attendees into a false gospel of works entrapping their souls and actually inoculating them from the true gospel because they don't think they need it. I'm a good church goer. I'm in the Bible belt of Wilson, North Carolina. What need do I have for the gospel? I'm a good person. I give my offerings. I show up and move a chair. Therefore, I'm right before God. What a sinister lie. But yet so many, so many who attend church regularly fall into this false gospel of works. If that's you, I pray that the gospel of grace would lovingly, if not painfully, shatter your delusions this morning. You cannot save yourself. You cannot. None of us can save ourselves. Salvation is the gift of God to be received in faith. So trust not in your works. Trust in the finished work of Christ. 
The work of salvation is accomplished on his shoulders, not your shoulders. And with his arms stretched out upon that cross, Jesus alone finishes the work of redemption. So friend, repent. Repent of your religion. Repent of your good works. Repent of your self-reliance. And humble yourself before God. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Don't, don't you realize who you are? You are baby Jessica in the bottom of the well. You are a swimmer out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. You cannot save yourself. So therefore, throw yourself down, being broken of spirit, poor in spirit before this God, and confess your need for him. Confess your helplessness before him. And today we pray that the Lord would intervene in your life, that he would make you alive, that he would gift you faith, that he would raise you up with Christ and that you would be seated with him unto the heavenly places. So let me urge you, put your faith in Christ and the God of grace will save you. Our text has so beautifully captured the question, how are we saved? We're saved by grace through faith. But Paul also wants to help us see, why does God save us? For what purpose does God rescue us out of the depths of our sin? What does he have in store for us once we become a Christian? Why did he do it this way? Why are we saved? And that leads us to our second question. Why are we saved? Well, we're saved for good works. We have to get the order right. If you get the order wrong, you're going to lose your soul. But we have to understand the order by which Paul understands how the gospel works. It happens by grace through faith. And then we are set apart as God's workmanship for his glory. We know that from Paul's opening doxology, that the grand work of redemption aims for the praise of his glory. Didn't we see that over and over again in those opening verses? But just how... Does our redemption from our sin bring God glory? Well, Paul helps give us an answer in 2.10, and he anticipates his later call for the church to walk worthy of the call that they've been given in Ephesians 4 verse 1. Look at what Paul says in verse 10. Let's read it carefully. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So in celebration of God's initiative, of his grace, Paul calls us, those of us who have received such a great salvation, we are God's workmanship. The original word here for workmanship is poema, which is where we get our word poem from. But the term does not refer to stanzas and rhymes, but in the original language, it refers to any work of art, not just poetry. So F.F. Bruce gets to the heart of the meaning here with simple beauty he says, we are God's work of art, his masterpiece. Take a look at the creation around you, particularly as the weather is becoming more beautiful. We see it all over the place. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. And the sky swirls with a surprising mixture of reds and of oranges and it yellows at the sunset. And each ripple of the ocean's waves bursts with a canvas of 10,000 colors of blue. But the capstone of God's creation is not the sky above or the oceans below. It's humanity. 
and the creator expends his infinite wisdom uh, and his unrivaled creativity in order to fashion human beings, men and women made in his image. And every human being at every stage of life showcases the glory of God simply by their beating heart. But the creation of the cosmos testifies to the master artist. We see his artistry everywhere. But what does Paul say is God's masterpiece? What is the masterpiece that God has done? Claude Monet had his water lilies. Van Gogh had his starry night. Da Vinci had his Mona Lisa. Raphael had his Sistine Chapel. But what is God's masterpiece? God's masterpiece What showcases his skill, his wisdom, his power is not any work of creation, but his work of recreation. That's what Paul says. We are his masterpiece, meaning the church. Those of us who are made alive, resurrected by the power of Christ, we are God's masterpiece. The masterpiece of God is not made from the dirt of the ground, but that which is created from his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the gospel, God takes fallen and broken and dead sinners like us, and he makes us new creations. He pours out his grace into our hearts and into our lives, and he makes us new people, a new humanity. The gospel is not about becoming a better person. It's about being made a new person after the pattern of Christ. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Look at your life. You might not feel like much of a masterpiece. I know I certainly don't. You may look at your life and you may see a mess. And as you look at yourself, you might think quietly, well, there seems to be nothing beautiful about my life. I've messed it up too much. Sin seems to have its grip on my throat and I'm broken and I'm ruined and I've got consequences everywhere. Take heart. Take heart if you think that way. God has poured out his power, his wisdom, and his grace to make you, yes, you, his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. God has chosen you to not only be the recipient of his grace, but the means by which he communicates his glory to the world. That's what God has in store for you. The master artist is still at work, and his chisel is on us. And he is even now painfully chipping away by spirit and word. He's chipping away the old self to shape us into the new self conformed after the pattern of Christ. Sanctification is an ongoing work, but God has the finished product of your life in his mind. The great artists, the best artists, are those who can visualize their masterpiece in their mind's eye before they ever take a chisel or pick up a brush. When asked about how he scopes, the great Renaissance artist Michelangelo said, I saw the angel in the marble and carved until I set him free. And so it is with God, the master artist who takes you, yes, you, the big blockhead that you are, and he carves and he chivels and he molds and he shapes us by his grace into the image of his son. And God will complete that work that he's begun in you. 
He doesn't ever give up on a project. He sees it to completion. And why does God make us alive? Why does he raise us up with Christ? Why does he sit us with Christ? Why does he save us by his grace? Why does he choose to make us his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus? Well, what does Paul say in verse 10? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God makes his name glorious as he pours out his grace upon sinners like us and as he transforms us into the means by which God himself accomplishes his good works in the world. He does it in and through his masterpieces. In other words, we are the outworking of God's good works that he prepared beforehand for us to do. Now that language of preparing beforehand should immediately take our minds back to Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. Back to that doxology where God chose to bless us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Just as a work of art testifies to the artist's genius, so do we as God's workmanship testify to the glory of God. And God has fashioned us in the gospel to make us fit for the good works that he prepared for us to do from before the foundations of the world. You see, good works are indispensable to salvation, says John Stott. Not as its ground or means, however, but as its consequence and evidence. Again, we got to get the order right. We're not saved by works, but as God's grace gets at work changing our lives, as we're saved in Christ, we're saved for good works. Not by good works, but for good works. And notice the order that Paul lays out. Lloyd Jen said it this way, it is not a question of good works leading to Christianity, but Christianity leading to good works. And so it is with the good works of the Christian. The, the masterpiece of the creator's grace is us. And through us, God is glorified by the good working of the Christian. In other words, God's grace is actually what makes our good works possible. Notice the contrast that Paul makes in Ephesians 2 with the word walking. That's a very important word in Ephesians, the word walk. Look at the beginning of the chapter, Ephesians chapter 2, right? Before Christ, we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. But God, he's intervened. He's given us rich mercy. He's made us alive. He's saved us by his grace. And where do we get by the end of verse 10? And so we go from walking in sin to now, because of God's intervention, we're walking in good works. Notice the change. What a transformation. This isn't just a transformation. This is a, a resurrection. This is a new creation that God has done by his grace, taking us who walked in the deadness of our sin. Now we're walking in good works for the glory of God. And so the Christian faith produces us into new creatures who can now, by God's grace, serve the Lord with joy, with love, with gladness. God has fashioned us for this very purpose. And although we all receive the same grace, God has given out many different assignments for us to do. Therefore, you should walk in the good works that God has uniquely prepared for you to do. He's given you a job, good works to perform. Therefore, you should walk in those good works. Paul told the Romans that we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. 
and that we should use them. God gives a variety of gifts to his church, but it's the same spirit, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12. So Paul told the Corinthians that God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so the beauty of God's craftsmanship begins to multiply as individual Christians who are created anew by grace and are prepared for good works as we all as individuals begin to walk together in unity in the local church. What happens? The good works multiply. The good works multiply in the world. God is glorified by the working of his church. The glory of God begins to to burn brighter. But at that point, we are coming a little bit dangerously close to skipping ahead into the second half of the chapter where Paul will begin to talk about how God has done just that. He's not only saved us as individuals, but he brings us together in unity and that the ultimate workmanship of God is not just us as his masterpiece, but he's forming us as a temple for him. For his dwelling, the redeemed saints fashioned together, stacked like bricks upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So the craftsmanship of God, the masterpiece of God goes beyond merely our individual redemption, but it goes into the edifice of God's glory that we call the church. Christian, do you believe yourself to be God's masterpiece? What good works has God prepared for you to do in Christ as a recipient of God's love, of his mercy, of his grace? Let me urge you, if you're in Christ, get to work serving the Lord for his glory. Do you love him with all of your heart? Do you obey his word? Do you live every day to bring glory to the one who has saved you and redeemed you? You see, the gospel has freed you, church. It's freed you unto glad and joyful service unto the Lord. Without the Lord's grace, serving, obedience, works become burdensome. What a terrible taskmaster. But by God's grace, we are freed from the burden of the law in order to earn our salvation. We don't have to do that anymore. We are now new creatures in Christ Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit and empowered by God to serve him with joy, our loving creator and redeemer. This is what he has done for us. One of my favorite works of Martin Luther, the great German reformer, was a book called The Freedom of the Christian. And in that little pamphlet, he explains to the ordinary churchmen the incredible implication of God's grace and justification by faith. He explains it to the German people. He wrote, uh, he wrote letters and, and pamphlets for the, the clergy and for the, the people in the church. He wrote it to princes. But here, Luther, his target audience is ordinary German people. And this is what he says. He says, although the Christian is thus free from all works, he ought in this liberty to empty himself, take up himself the form of a servant, be made in the likeness of men, be found in human form and to serve, help and in every way deal with his neighbor as he sees that God through Christ has dealt and still, still deals with him. In other words, what Luther stresses is that if we have a right understanding of the gospel, that we are saved by grace through faith, then we are free from all works. And that therefore makes us free to be a servant to Christ and to others. So serve 
your fellow church members. Serve your co-workers in Jesus' name. Exude love and gentleness and kindness to everyone and sacrifice and be generous to a world in need. And yes, certainly proclaim and testify of the grace of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are freed from the burden of self-reliance to walk in the good works that God has fashioned for us to do in Christ Jesus. Christian, look at your life. Look at it carefully. Marvel at the testimony of God's grace that is exemplified by your existence. He has saved you, and it is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And day by day, the Holy Spirit is at work in your life, fashioning you ever more into the masterpiece of God that showcases his glory to the world. God's grace is glorious. Dare I say, God's grace is amazing. John Newton, the author of that hymn, Amazing Grace, wrote this testimony about his life. I am not what I ought to be. Ah, how imperfect and deficient. I am not what I wish to be. I abhor what is evil and I would cleave to what is good. I'm not what I hope to be. Soon, soon I shall put off mortality and with mortality all sin and imperfection. Yet, though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, I can truly say I am not what I once was, a slave to sin and Satan. And I can heartily join with the apostle and acknowledge by the grace of God, I am what I am. As we examine our own lives today, may we say with John Newton and the Apostle Paul, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as we assemble this morning, we are grateful, Lord, that you have saved us by your grace through faith. And Lord, even that faith comes by your gift Father, I do pray for those here this morning who do not know Christ. Lord, maybe they've been self-reliant like so many of us were, relying on their own moral behavior, their own good works, their own religious observance in order to save themselves. Lord, help them to see how helpless they are, that they're lost, stuck in the middle of the ocean, trying to swim to shore a thousand miles away. Lord, help them in that desperation not to be filled with confidence of their own ability, but Lord, may they cry out for you to save, for you to intervene, for you to help. Father, I pray that you might break them over their sin, help them to see their helplessness, and Lord, we ask that you might give them faith to trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation. Father, I pray for those of us who are in Christ. Lord, we have been saved, not by our working, but by your grace. Lord, I pray that you would help us to marvel at your goodness to us, Lord, and that we would be freed from the demands of the law to live sacrificially and openly and generously as we lay down our lives like Christ for the good of others. Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to marvel at your ongoing work in your life as you are fashioning us into your masterpieces as you are completing the work of grace you've begun in our hearts, Lord, as you will bring us to glory. God, we, we are so thankful, Lord, for your salvation. 
And Lord, as we prepare to turn our attention to sing and to the Lord's table, we ask that we would marvel and worship over you, the great God, who gives grace and faith to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.